I'm going to show you something here that uh, has pretty much nothing to do with today's sermon, but I thought you'd get a kick out of seeing it anyway. Some of you have seen this already. Audio. It's clear in that filling the air. For 50 or so years, I didn't play. After my wife died, about a year after her death, I was grieving so deeply that I just sensed God said, pick up your horn. <laughs> so for the past uh, 12 years or so, I've been playing again. Garrett says he comes on any nice day he can to soak it all in, something he says more people should do. I think it's very valuable. I think we need to have places we can go and get outdoors, appreciate the beauty. I think it's extremely important. I think they are doing a good job. Yeah. The story went on from there to talk about the importance of parks and how they're trying to fund the parks. But uh, I don't know if you noticed the time on that. It was 10 p.m. So it was the lead story that night. So Jim, something about Jim that makes it the lead story, apparently. So <laughs> we pray that about you a lot, Jim. God help us. Connect the Dots is a simple game, something many of us learned as children. We learn to follow the numbers and we connect them in order, and we see that eventually something we recognize will appear. In other words, the dots are leading to something. And this is a simple thing with profound lessons for children as they begin to see how various connections can make sense of the world. But I would suggest that not just children can learn from this object visual lesson. I think adults can learn about connecting the dots in a similar way. And this can also have a very significant impact on our choices, on the way we live our lives, and more importantly, how we see God at work making the little connections form a bigger picture. This can help us because we don't always see clearly where God is leading us. And almost always, we only have part of the big picture that big picture that God always sees. We know from his word that God has a purpose and a plan, and that that plan for us as individuals, for us as a church, and for the whole world is being worked out for our good. Scripture tells us that. But just as in the Connect the Dots puzzle, we need to follow the steps that God has prepared for us, listen to his word, trust him, and take our lives as God gives it and reveals to it to us. Someone once said that faith is when we continue to trust God's heart and character even when we cannot trace his hand. Because of this faith, we can trust that God has perfectly planned the picture even when we don't understand everything yet. We can see that when we ignore his word and disregard his order of things, the picture can get distorted. Now, there are positive and negative illustrations we can draw from this connect-the-dots analogy, and we're going to look at both of those this morning. The positive, of course, is how even the seemingly small things that we do can positively impact the things of God and His kingdom purposes. The negative side of connecting the dots shows how the things we do can cause us and others difficult or even sometimes terrible consequences. Communicating with Steve Staub just a couple weeks ago after his hamstring injury, and uh, rumor has it he did it getting a hot dog, but we'll leave that part alone. 
I thought about how amazing it is that one event in one moment can change your life for sometimes days, weeks, months, years, or even a lifetime. So one second, Steve was walking up some stairs, missed a step. The next, his life, his plans, the way he can and can't do things, at least for the next several weeks, was inescapably altered. For Steve, this injury and the recovery will hopefully just be a week's-long consequence in his life. But, you know, that's not always the case sometimes with circumstances in our lives or sometimes the choices that lead to those circumstances. In Steve's case, of course, it was an accident. It wasn't a choice. I don't think Steve is quite that uh, masochistic to do that to himself. And that led to this moment of life change for him. But often, it's our own choices that can change the course of our lives. And again, this can be for days, weeks, months, years, or even a lifetime. And again, that can be a positive thing or that can be a negative thing. If I take this chair over here and I knock it over, that's cause and effect, right? You hear a noise, it'll fall down. Science would call that cause and effect. One particular action has a very specific result. My pushing the chair caused it to fall over with a resulting noise. Now, if I call James up on stage, come on up here as a matter of fact, James. If I call James up on the stage and I pat him on the face, what's likely to happen? He's going to, no, 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 no. I just patted you, James. I just patted you. Okay, if I pat him on the face, what happens? He's going to chuckle. He's going to smile, right? But if I keep doing it, or if I do it harder, you heard that, didn't you? And if I do it too long, what's going to happen? You can have a seat, James, before you get mad. <laughs> there would be a different result, right? If I do that, James might get mad at me. And because James is bigger and stronger, not to mention younger than me, I might not like the results of him getting mad at me very much. There's an everyday expression, in addition, James's face is a little red on that side, but there's an everyday expression in addition to the idea of connecting the dots, and this captures what we're talking about here as well. There's also a biblical understanding that illustrates this same thing. The everyday expression I'm thinking of is what goes around comes around. You've heard that, right? It's kind of similar to connect the dots. It's the idea that there's a result to our actions. There are consequences. It also includes the idea that in many cases we get what we deserve. You'll often hear this expression related to how we treat people when we treat them poorly and we end up at some point suffering related consequences. Someone who's seen the whole scenario might be inclined to say, what goes around comes around. Or they might say, connect the dots. Sometimes this expression implies eventually. In other words, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually what goes around comes around. Eventually, the dots will be connected. Many of our everyday expressions like this aren't even close to being biblical. But these particular expressions have some real biblical truth in them. If you brought your Bibles this morning, you might turn with me to Galatians. And we're going to read from chapter 6, verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul writes to the Galatians here, Do not be deceived, 
God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. This passage shows both the negative and the positive consequences of our choices. A man, or of course a woman, reaps what he or she sows. This is a biblical way of saying, connect the dots, or what goes around comes around. As I've thought about this passage these last few weeks, I've realized that in our cultural moment, it's often very socially and politically incorrect to present the idea that there are real consequences to our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors. I read about a documentary series on a cable network about the Playboy empire. Now, some of you younger people may not know much about Playboy, but growing up, I heard a lot about Playboy because it was a popular and widely circulated magazine for men, and it had a lot of pictures of naked women in it. My, uh, the first exposure to porn for men of my generation was probably Playboy magazine. Now it's on the Internet. The thing that amazes me about what I've read about the documentary, I've read a couple articles, is how surprised and horrified that people are now about the culture of sexual abuse of women that surrounded the whole Playboy empire and specifically its founder, Hugh Hefner. Now, wait a minute. This was absolutely predictable. This was a magazine that capitalizes on men lusting after naked women. And it was founded by and run by a man who celebrated the idea that pretty much anything goes when it comes to sex. And now there's this 10-hour documentary that reveals that people seem shocked. That a magazine designed to take advantage of men's worst impulses run by a sexually promiscuous man trying to normalize that behavior could be a part of sexual abuse. What could possibly go wrong? Even though many things seem to be crystal clear when we think of cause and effect, I push the chair over, it falls over, it makes a noise. To say so about many issues is to invite ridicule and scorn. Saying so makes you very unpopular. There are many examples we can cite. Let me just give you one. The whole recent Me Too movement, right? Where women are coming forward with stories of sexual harassment in a variety of settings. I have to stifle a laugh every time I see a Hollywood producer, director, or actor make a public statement about how horrible all of this is. Apparently not seeing the dots connected in their own contribution to this culture with the sexual immorality that's depicted on television and movie screens and popular music that they've acted in, they've produced, they've directed. Connect the dots. We could cite other examples where because of a political or a social agenda, the idea of what goes around and comes around, the idea that you reap what you sow, as Scripture says, is denied completely. And instead, it's blamed on anything rather than the most obvious thing. This person or group chose to, as the Bible says, sow to the sinful nature. What could possibly go wrong? Now let me be clear here. Sexual harassment and abuse are not okay. 
even when it's a foreseeable consequence of a certain behavior. We don't want to let this turn into uh, schadenfreude. You heard that word, that German word, schadenfreude? Okay. It's a German word that means pleasure derived from the misfortunes of others. Kind of, yeah, you got what you deserved. I believe as Christians we should be just as appalled as the world is by sexual abuse in any form, and we must show compassion for people who are victims in some way of sexual abuse because they need the love of Christ. We should be at the forefront of ministry to such people because our call as believers is to minister to the needs of those with broken lives. Another aspect of the negative side of connecting the dots is that we don't operate independently. That's why the popular phrase among pro-abortion people of my body, my choice doesn't work. Here's why. Your choice in this instance involves at least two other people. The man who got pregnant and the new life in your womb. And maybe your parents and the man's parents who will never see this grandchild. We could go on and on. The idea is, you've heard this phrase, no one's an island, right? There's an ever-widening ripple when we sow to our flesh rather than sow to the Spirit. We can't just say, that's my choice and I'll live with it. We must all live with the choices that we make for ourselves, but with the most of the decisions you make, what goes around doesn't just come around for you, it might come around to impact me. It might come around to impact others as well. Many people engage in sexually and otherwise risky behaviors and experiences that can result in unintended health consequences. They're unintended, but they're not unforeseeable because, connect the dots, substance abuse, alcohol or drugs, texting while driving, sexual promiscuity, which can lead to HIV, STDs, pregnancy, tobacco use, financially risky behavior like gambling. You know what? Even secular psychology talks about such risky behaviors and the foreseeable consequences of them. But the Bible was addressing these things long before there was even such a thing as psychology. But consider with me a moment the practical implications of this. If a man cheats on his wife, here's just a glimpse of the ripple effect that goes out from that choice. Unfortunately, even now I'm seeing this work out practically in the life of somebody I know. And unfortunately, I've seen it up close and personally in the past, so this is not just an exercise in my imagination, like what could possibly go wrong? What's my uh, thinking about this? It illustrates why I can't ever just limit the harvest of my sin to me. First, it brings pain to the wife. And if there's children, it brings pain to the children. The situation I'm thinking of, now it's cost this man his marriage. At the very least, it has cost him the hard-earned respect of his immediate family and his extended family, his brothers, his nieces, his nephews. Talk about blowing your witness. This man claims to be a Christian. Then there's financial cost of divorce. It isn't cheap. How can this man who claims the name of Christ look family or friends in the eye and tell them that he's been living a lie? He's lost all credibility. It might even extend to some people losing their faith. They may think, well, if this man's been living a lie, why should I try to be a devoted follower of Christ? This sin, 
this moment or season of pleasure has cost more than we can count now. Do the math. Connect the dots. With this as just one kind of example, we can see the fact that there's no such thing as completely private behavior with completely private consequences. Even if we do something that's never revealed to anyone else, something that only God knows about, there are consequences in our relationship with Him. And there's a distancing, a barrier put up between us and God. And that distance between us and God eventually will manifest itself in other ways that affect other people. That's something that nobody ever hears about. Nobody ever knows. That's just reality. Most people know, I think, either instinctively or experientially, that we reap what we sow. Yet with some very specific consequences because of our behavior, such as STDs or drinking and driving, they choose to ignore what they know to be true, or they deceive themselves and others because of the constant battle for our souls, because of the constant battle of our sin nature versus our saved nature. Our culture is largely accepting, for example, of uh, unmarried couples living together now, and it's seemingly okay to get pregnant outside of marriage. There's little or no social stigma to these things anymore like there used to be. So people feel more free now than ever to do these kinds of things. But the passage of Scripture we just read from Galatians addresses the why of this issue, I think, more clearly. Remember what it says in verse 7. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Think of that. To deny or wander away from the truth. This is all encompassed in that idea of being deceived. To be seduced into thinking a lie is the truth and the truth is a lie. To roam from the safety of reality of the truth and to ignore the consequences for the sake of that moment or season of pleasure. There's a a little parable about a pig who ate his fill of acorns under an oak tree and then he started to root around the tree and a crow remarked to him you should not do this if you lay bare the roots the tree will wither and die let it die said the pig who cares as long as there are acorns kind of short-sighted isn't it that's part of what it means to say God is not mocked of course oftentimes we don't even fully deceive ourselves Sometimes our mocking is a little more willful, though we might not see it that way. That's the other part of what means when Paul says God is not mocked. Now again, don't, we don't necessarily think of it this way because we don't start there, but we start by ignoring the seemingly little things, quote-unquote little things. We submit to little sins because we think, what's the harm or who will know? That's what David did with Bathsheba. We all know that story. Here was this hot chick on the roof, and she was bathing herself. She was an eyeful. She probably could have posed for Playboy and maybe later appeared at a Me Too rally. But David, rather than turn away immediately, probably lingered on the sight of her. Whether he thought this consciously or not, he decided there's no harm in this. After all, it was a little thing. A lot of sin starts out this way. So what started out as a seemingly harmless glance had repercussions in the lives of thousands of people. It cost David. 
It cost David dearly for the rest of his life. It cost his family in direct and indirect ways. It cost the lives of many. Now, did God forgive David? Yes, God forgave David. David truly repented. His repentance is echoed in many of the Psalms he wrote. For example, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. So David was forgiven. God forgave David. He blotted out the eternal consequences of David's sin because the forgiveness from God for David was genuine. Yet, David's life is filled with the temporal, that is, the this life consequences of this sin. Now, it's doubtful that David ever thought, until maybe after his sin was revealed, that he was mocking God, that he was thumbing his nose at God, turning his nose up at God, even in the darkest slide of his uh, stretch into adultery and murder. That's because he eroded his conscience and fell into self-deception with smaller sins at first, which led to ever larger sins with even greater consequences. And those were mostly to cover up the sins that he'd already committed. David, like us, reaped what he sowed. So what is Paul's point here in verse 7? Don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. God cannot be mocked. What Paul is telling us here is that we don't ever truly get away with anything. Sin corrodes and erodes our soul. It, ero it destroys our integrity and it erodes the foundation of our very relationship with God. Sooner or later, our sin is going to come out. Sooner or later, we will reap. Eventually, we will reap what we sow. But as we mentioned before, connecting the dots has both this negative connotation as well as a positive one. Even this passage from Galatians that we read has a positive side to it. And I, that's where I'd like to spend our kind of remaining minutes this morning as we look at this passage. Remember the verse uh, 8, the end of verse 8, it says, The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up as we saw that those who sow to please their sinful nature will reap destruction, at least eventually, we see the opposite is true too. Paul must have understood that people needed encouragement to continue to sow to please the Spirit, to obey God, to do good works. Why? Because he recognized that we can become weary when we do this and see no results. Worse yet, we can see People who are sowing to please their flesh seem to get away with stuff like for days, weeks, months, years, and here we are doing all of the good stuff that we're doing, sowing to please the Spirit, and we see no results. Now, how many of us do our best, really seek God, really make our best effort to plant good things in our lives and the lives of those around us, and it seems to count for nothing? Sometimes we get in stretches like that. We don't see results. It doesn't seem to make any real difference. Well, why should I keep doing this? It doesn't make any difference. Paul has told us here that even as those who think they've fooled God because it seems like they've gotten away with their sin and they've consistently planted things to please only themselves, 
even these people will eventually harvest what they've sown. The same is true in a positive way of those of us who plant the things of God into our lives and into the lives of others. We will harvest what we've sown too when we plant good things in the lives of our own life, our families, our friends, our church, uh, the kingdom of God. We see this echoed in other scriptures. We see in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10, Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. One commentary said this, God gives hope. Eventually the righteous will receive God's reward, and the wicked will receive their punishing. It is disheartening to see the wicked prosper while we struggle to obey God and follow his plan, yet we keep holding on to God's truth and take heart. God will bring about justice in the end, and he will reward those who have been faithful. Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 reinforces the ideas that we found earlier in Galatians 6. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Now this can apply to our personal lives. This can apply to our relationships as well as to our kingdom service. I'm constantly reminded of something that we've learned through the years here at TCF. And this is probably the first place I learned it. There's no hierarchy of service in the kingdom of God. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. In other words, missionaries are not more important than elders. And elders are not more important than children's church teachers. And teachers are not more important than custodians or secretaries. And they are not more important than those who have a ministry of prayer. And people who work outside the home are not more important than mothers who stay home to raise their kids. And those who are in quote-unquote full-time Christian ministry are not more important in the kingdom of God than those who work a secular job. I learned that here. And I live by that. What does full-time Christian ministry even mean? If we're in Christ, we're all in full-time Christian ministry, period. Here's how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians, and we begin to connect the dots. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse verse 5 through 9. What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now, most Sundays here at TCF, we see, at least for a few moments, that's why we call it a missions moment, we see a focus on missions, and rightly so. Missions is the calling of this church. But think about this. Most of us are here in Tulsa. We're not missionaries in the sense that we think of missionaries. We're not called to be missionaries. We're not supposed to live and work in Serbia like Boyan and Rachel we featured this morning. We're not supposed to go to all the places in South Asia like Cindy Perry is supposed to. We're supposed to stay here. This is our place of service. But does that mean we're not part of the missions team? 
Do we have a role in missions? Absolutely, my brothers and sisters. We have a very important and vital role. Paul told the Corinthians here that the Lord has assigned to each his task. Whatever your task, it's just part of the team effort. Whether you're John Niles on the missions field or you're James Thorpe overseeing a sermon or preaching or you're Mike Bros doing security at the door or you're Chuck Shepard collecting and counting the offering or you're Jody McIndarfer running the vacuum or Dave helping out at the handicap entrance. God is the one who enables us to score touchdowns. That is to receive results from the team effort. Paul tells us that whatever we do, whatever role we fill, In the kingdom of God, we have but one purpose. Verse 8, Galatians 6, we read it. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Paul also tells us that we cannot sit back and say, well, missions or any kind of ministry is not my job. We must not ask whether or not we fit into the kingdom purpose of this church. But how do we fit? into the kingdom purpose, the primary purpose for which this church exists, for which we as individual believers exist, and that's the spread of the gospel here and around the world to the glory of God. That can be difficult. It's a little easier to see what Cindy Perry does as kingdom work than to see what Bruce Clutter does as ministry. But without what Bruce does as our church bookkeeper, and as a member of the elders council, and both those things are very much behind the scenes. The absolute truth is that Cindy could not do what she does. But even Bruce's role is maybe a little easier for some of us to see. What if you're not keeping track of the finances or you're not helping lead the church? You might say, well, all I can do is pray. I mean, haven't we, I've said that. All I can do is pray. I can tell you that Paul the first recorded missionary in Scripture, certainly didn't take the role of prayer lightly. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 18, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, Paul writes, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Any missionary you speak with will tell you that prayer is absolutely the most critical and vital job in the whole missions machine. Without prayer, not a one of our missionaries could do any of the work that they're doing. Now, prayer may not be glamorous. In fact, sometimes it's drudgery. Sometimes it's difficult. And no, it's not visible. You don't get featured several times each year in a missions moment. But it's vital. It's critical. It's absolutely essential to the work of missions. Of course, giving is critical as well. Not one of our missionaries can fully support themselves without the financial support of this church, and that means all of us. Giving to support our missionaries is vital as well and a crucial component of the work. Back to the letter to the Corinthians in verse 8, Paul says, each will be rewarded according to his own labor. And then in verse 9 it says, for we are God's fellow workers. So here's Paul 
Paul was a church planting missionary, and he's telling these Corinthians in Corinth that they are a part of the mission, part of the outworking of God's purpose here. My guess is that many, if not most, of those Corinthians never left Corinth in their entire lives. But Paul's also telling them that they're still part of this work in those faraway places, even though they never get to go to those exotic places he's been going. And he's also telling them that as part of this team, they have a responsibility for which they will be held accountable and for which they will be rewarded. In other words, share in the harvest. Sometimes we think of missionaries or those in some sort of visible public ministry as the superstars of the Christian endeavor. Certainly in some ways that might seem true. I don't mean this morning in any way to diminish the work or the sacrifices that our missionaries make to do what God's given them to do. They are worthy of our honor and respect. But let's remember this. Superstars don't win championships. I'm a sports guy. I love sports. I think in sports analogies a lot. But superstars don't win championships, at least until they're truly part of a team that can help them win a championship. For example, Michael Jordan was probably the most individually talented basketball player ever. LeBron James is at least in the same conversation. All of their amazing individual talent didn't get them to the top, didn't win championships until they were part of a good team. Look at the history of both of those players and see what it took to help them win a championship. Of course, all the things we've said about this team approach here at TCF don't just apply to missions. They apply to any outreach in our community, to the Good News Club, to VBS, or to any other ministry of the church. My brothers and sisters, the bottom line is we're all part of God's team, all of us. And the highly visible superstars, the ones that you see do things, need us. So what I'm encouraging you to do this morning is connect the dots in the negative ways that we looked at when you consider your behavior, your attitudes, and sowing to the things of the flesh. But also, let's connect the dots in a positive way. Let's see how this task or that prayer or that money is connected to the end goal. Souls into the kingdom of God. And let's take seriously our role, my role, my dot. Which dot am I in the connection, in the process, even as we seek to sow to please the Spirit rather than our sinful nature in everything we do? Again, Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Heavenly Father, thank you for this these clear examples of what it means to sow to please our flesh and to sow to please our spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we consider these things, your Holy Spirit would build in us a desire to please you in all that we do. And Father, you would help us to connect the dots, help us to see 
in a negative sense that what goes around comes around and there are consequences for our sin and our behavior. But Father God, we pray that you would also help us to see the positive side of connecting the dots, that we are part of your kingdom purposes, Lord, no matter what we do in service to you. And we can do everything as unto the Lord, as your word says. Help us to see that. Help us to live in that. Help us to seek what you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen.